The recent migrant crisis at the border has brought the United States asylum and border enforcement process to the news cycle. In this two-part podcast series, adjunct professor Kathy Chesley, director of the New Hampshire Catholic Charities Office of Immigration and Refugee Services, puts light on this confusing and politically charged topic. This is the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about the law school and apply by visiting law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So in part one, we'll essentially be doing a primer on asylum and what it means and how you get it, kind of things like that. So start off with, Kathy, what's kind of the legal meaning of asylum? So first I want to step back and make a distinction between asylum or an asylum seeker and a refugee. Refugees are individuals who've been persecuted abroad, who cannot return to their home country because the home situation is so far out of control that they would continue to suffer persecution. So the UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner of Refugees, identifies these people as refugees, and there is a multi-stage process that they will have to go through to prove that before leaving, before coming to America. They have to be vetted, they have to prove the persecution, there's a whole many steps, they have to spend a little bit of time in a separate country while they're being vetted. That's a refugee. An asylum seeker is one who's here on American soil, but who has left their country because they were persecuted and cannot go back because their fear of persecution is legitimate. So that's the difference, an asylum seeker is in the United States when they apply, a refugee is outside of the United States when they apply. The same sort of standards of review, except it's where they located that determines what what legal terminology we apply to them. In terms of asylum, we are undergoing the most, I would say, severe numbers of applications that we've seen in years, in part because other avenues of relief are being cut off from people, and in part because so many people who haven't actually committed crimes are being put in detention and they're seeking asylum where perhaps when they were left alone before didn't need, weren't forced to that final act of um, relief. So to get asylum, one has to have suffered a severe form of persecution torture, threats on life, um, threats on property, that sort of thing. A severe form of persecution. And the persecution has to be based on certain enumerated grounds, race, religion, ethnicity, gender. Another one is what we call a particular social group. So for example, a gay person from the Middle East who was beaten by local police authority would have a right to claim asylum if he could show certain other things. So it comes down to physical harm or threat of physical Physical harm? Physical harm, threat of physical harm, emotional harm, devastation of your property, threats on your life, on your family members' lives, that kind of thing. Then the fear, the persecution has to be such that the fear of returning is legitimate, that, that you would still expect to be harmed if you return. 
you also have to show that there's a direct relationship between that particular claim of persecution, race, and the persecution that you are being persecuted on account of your race, on account of your religion. Sometimes, often the two are connected, but sometimes they're not. It's more than just living in a bad neighborhood. It's more more than just living in a bad neighborhood, yes. And more than just living in a really bad neighborhood that most of us could never contemplate tolerating. The other things we have to show is that there's nowhere in the country that a person could be returned to whether it's Iran or whether it's Pakistan or whether it's uh, Indonesia, you have to show that the whole country is one where you couldn't be safe. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. You also have to show that you've not committed any crime of terrorism against the government. So if you're someone with a really bad criminal record and you're applying for asylum, chances are pretty good. You're not going to get it if it's involved any kind of um And probably you wouldn't get it anyway if you've been conducting a life of crime. There's there's a whole bunch of good moral characters kind of expectations that go along with wanting to stay in the United States. We're not going to accept people who have lived a life of crime because they probably want to move here and just continue with their life of crime. A couple examples of cases we've had in the past, I think, would illustrate how those criteria work. So we had a young Iraqi man who was a student in the state of New Hampshire. He fled Iraq when a group of people came to his family home, a group of paramilitary thugs in Baghdad, and they threatened to kill him and his entire family if they didn't vacate within a week. Now, he had a cousin who said, I'm not gonna believe them, I'm gonna stay put. His cousin was killed. So they took the whole family and his uncle's family that lived upstairs took this threat very seriously and the family dispersed. Some went to Dubai, some went to Egypt, and a few went to other countries I can't remember right now. In that case, there were threats on their lives, there were threats on their property. They knew the threats were real. They knew these people could carry them out. And there's a history to show. And a history to show it. They didn't have to go far to know that many people had been exterminated Um, tortured and then killed because of refusal to, in a lawless situation, refusal to comply with whoever claims that they're in charge becomes a difficult challenge. So then he gets here and he applies for asylum. And after mm, five years, he actually was awarded asylum because he could not go home. Not only had they lost all their family business, but their houses were gone and taken over by other people. Another case is a young man from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the government had been conducting large sweeps of neighborhoods going after this one little group of hooligans, let's say. His younger brother, who was standing waiting for a bus at the time, got caught up in the net, pulled out, disappeared. When this man went to inquire of the local police, they kept telling him, go away, we don't know where your brother is. He finally wrote a letter to Human Rights Watch. He went back and asked entry to the chief of police. When he was admitted to the chief of police office, they searched him, found the letter to Human Rights Watch, and then took him, incarcerated him. He knew that day, that next day, he would be executed. The threats that were heard, the torture, the yelling and the screaming, but for the help of a particular guard who knew from his accent that he was not that tribe of hooligans, so therefore his brother wouldn't be, the man let him out 
and said he owed a duty to God to return a favor that had been once returned to him. He got here safely. He applied for asylum. That's been four years. He's still waiting to hear on his case. That's something that people need to remember. The, the people that are applying for asylum, sometimes it takes years it in takes order for this. It takes many years, and it takes many more years now than it did even five years ago. Is this delay primarily due to lack of court funding and availability? Is it many different, is it the whole stream of people coming in? No, it's, we have many more people coming in now than ever before. The world is on the move. There's been physical environmental disasters that put people in motion. There's huge political unrest in many places. And a combination of those factors, drought, famine, starvation, and then politics come into play. People are on the move more than ever before, putting pressure on our borders from all, all north, south, east, west, and then from above the air and any way you can think of. Yeah, because that's got to be a huge impact, too, is the uh, technology changes over the last hundred years. Absolutely. people being able to move so much easier. And getting news to understand, ah, there's a place in the world where I might be able to go, and ha- even any life is better than this life. And, and we're not the only ones, of course. All of Europe is suffering an influx. And many countries, even in parts of the world, India, for example, people coming in with the situation in Myanmar, uh, Bangladesh, can hardly keep itself afloat and now is being subject to many, many thousands, of millions of refugees banging on their doors to get in as well. Specifically with the United States, who's in charge of the process for refugees and asylum? Two, two places. It's a good question, Aaron. In typical situations, when one makes what we call an affirmative application, I'm here, I cannot go back, I'm going to apply for asylum, that goes through the U.S. Um, Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS. That's the arm of the government that gives what we call benefits. Now, if someone's here in removal, let's say someone's here, they get caught, picked up, uh, driving with a taillight out, it's found that they're undocumented, and they are taken into custody, they will be put in jail, uh, most likely in one of our local community jails in Manchester, for example, Valley Street, or the Dover Jail, Stratford County Detention Center. They are now in a place where they can only file asylum defensively. That's their protection. I crossed, you're right, I committed a crime, I committed a misdemeanor, I should not have come in without papers, I've committed no crime, and here's why I left. Every American, every international person has the right stepping upon American soil to apply for asylum. So sometimes it's affirmative asylum and sometimes it's defensive. If it's defensive, you're no longer in the benefit arm of the government, you're now in the law enforcement arm. You're going before the court, and the um, bo- our court is the one located in Boston. I mean, I don't know if you know the numbers offhand, but how many people are entering, whether it is uh, they're a student at a college or they're, they've stay- overstayed a visa for some other reason, how many people are crossing the border illegally, or do we have no way to really know? Well, you know, there's different groups that research and come up with different statistics. Something I read recently was that around half of the people who have overstayed visas, 45 to 50%, people came in legitimately. They were, we call it inspected they, at Customs and Border. 
they were inspected, they were papers were examined, and they were allowed to come through. They then later overstayed versus roughly 55, 50 to 55% who come in in some other means, which is typically crossing the border. It's really tough to get in uh, coming in on boat vehicles, but crossing the border both north and south has been a particular concern these days, not just the southern border, but the northern border as so well. So another angle on this is the international law, our impa- the impact the United Nations has on how our laws are handled if we're going to follow the regulations of these treaties. What impact does the United Nations have on our refugee and asylum process? Another good question. The United Nations will bring parties together to create and sign on to conventions, agreements on how we're going to treat people internationally. So after World War II, there were conventions. Um, There's an international convention on the rights of, of children. There is a UN declaration on the rights of refugees. When a country signs on to these documents, treaties, as you were, I don't know the formal term, but an agreement, they then agreed to go back to their, to ratify it and go back to their home country and create the laws and the regulations which put that their agreement in place on behalf of the United Nations. With regard to refugees, we have a UN Declaration on the Rights of Refugees. We also have a whole body of law in the federal laws and federal regulations that very uh, specifically denote how this all works. People have said, and I agree, that the immigration laws are so complex and so bifurcated and added onto and adjusted and amended over the years that we are in need of complete comprehensive reform. It's as complicated as the tax code. And um, unless you've been in the field for many years and understand the ebb and flow of all the changes, it really makes you wonder why we have all these exceptions to exceptions to exceptions. But that's basically how it works. If we sign on to something with the United Nations, we then have to put in place laws. Congress has to enact laws and uh, regs to um, make that happen. So ultimately, the the enforcement in dealing with the people coming over the border, coming to wanting to come into the U.S., comes down to our country's government to handle it. With reference to refugees, yes, we have a very specific role and a commitment to having satisfied, having ratified, rather, that our our promise to do that relative to the border crossings. There may be, you know, treaties, for example, the United States with Canada Mm -hmm. about, and there is, what will happen if somebody comes, crosses from American onto Canadian soil and wants to seek asylum in Canada, guess what? Now the Canadians are returning them into the custody of the Americans. Mm -hmm. So you might have someone whose visa is about to expire. They leave the United States. They breach the terms of their visa. They enter Canada want to claim asylum, they will not get to make that asylum claim. They will be put in jail in America. So that's the agreement specific to the border that Canada and the United States have, but that is only between them. 
Yeah, it's not necessarily like the United Nations no. having a role in this. Right. It is country to country dealing with when it, When you're dealing with the, the immediate borders, but when you're dealing with refugees coming from all over the world, we agree to take certain numbers of refugees in, and then there's ways that they are dispersed throughout the, the country once they're here. And that'll lead us into part two, which we will be covering more specifically what's going on with the U.S. southern border, which is primarily people coming from South America and Central America. So definitely do subscribe to this podcast series. Uh, This has been part one of a two-part series on the asylum process. Be sure to subscribe to the UNH Law Podcast to automatically have part two download to your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks for listening. Learn more about us by visiting law.unh.edu or following UNH Law on social media. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire.